That anthem is so sweet and restorative. Thank you all so much for that. Let's all stand and read this passage of Scripture together. Mark 9, 14 through 29. Mark 9, 14 through 29. All together. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. Thank you. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Has the, has the Christian religion been one giant cosmic head fake? Has it been making false claims all along about what can happen to your life? Now, you would expect me to be asking these questions just for rhetorical effect. Of course, it's not making false claims, we say, but just explore this line of thought with me for a little while. If Christianity is true, and I am a Christian, I have accepted Christ, I'm saved, born again, all the phrases we use to refer to disciples of Jesus Christ, then why am I not a better person? Okay, maybe heaven is my destiny, ultimately. But what's happening here and now when my courage fails just when I need it? Or when my anxious mind won't let me sleep again? Or when I display that all-too-familiar garbagey behavior? Have you ever asked 
that question about yourself? I have. About me, not about you. Are there... Are there some things in your life that you have despaired of ever getting to budge? Are there some things that are, in fact, impossible? Well, what does it mean to say, I was blind and now I see? That phrase and the thinking behind it form a revered and deeply emotional expression of our Christian faith. People for much of history have used blindness and sight as metaphors for the way one thinks about and responds to the experience of living. Christians have used the phrase, I was blind and now I see, to mean that a person can come to know the world as it really is. I was blind and now I see has normally meant that a person is learning from Christ how to recognize the difference between what lasts and what doesn't, what's good and what's bad, what's truth and what's a lie, what's a waste of time and what's important. It's not a new world. It's the same world now made clear to you. It is the world that Jesus knew all along because He sees. That's what Christianity and Christians have meant by I was blind and now I see. Jesus knows reality and he can teach us to see it. Jesus trains us to think in a way that we can rightly understand the world and navigate it, growing in faith and knowledge and the eternal kind of life. Now, that kind of thinking is what we mean when we talk about sight as a metaphor for spiritual understanding. Spiritual thinking or spiritual sight is not just our own attempts at awareness or mindfulness of the world around us. Uh, Spiritual sight is not just trying really hard to think more deeply. It's rather a kind of thinking that gets its start from actual revelation from God. That's what makes it spiritual. I was blind and now I see It was dark, and now it's light. Things were off, and now they're on. That all sounds really decisive and really forward-leaning and really confident and really clear-cut, but are those the actual adjectives you would use to describe your daily life? We like our theology in those terms, decisive, forward-looking, confident, clear-cut. We like to hear the testimonies of people whose uh, words indicate that exact kind of transformation. We want it to look like that in our own lives. But I got to tell you, all this spiritual sight, sometimes I think it's not the good thing that I thought it was. You know what I mean? Learning to see reality is hard, and we get tired. And we get afraid, and we get confused, and we give in to our worst tendencies. Oh, yeah, it happens. Maybe there should be an extra verse to amazing grace. I was blind, and now I see, and sometimes I don't like what I see, and I go back to navigating like I did when I was blind. It, it would be a challenge with the meter, but maybe we could 
please work on that. It, it would be a very honest hymn, Aaron. Come on. Uh, Saul consults a medium. David indulges his power over another man's wife. Jeremiah swears God tricked him. John the Baptist starts to wonder if he's misidentified Jesus, and Peter starts sinking in the waves. And you, come on, you go back to that same anger with your sister, and you fear something at work which begins to paralyze your mind, or you lie to a friend, and on and on. We act really bad, don't we? We feel terrible, especially when we cycle back to the same patterns of living we swore we left behind back when we gained that celebrated spiritual sight. And here's what can happen then. We start to think maybe those patterns of behavior are actually the immovable things in our lives. Those things are reality. So then we start seeing prayer in God and church and religious leaders and religious celebrities as first aid kits that will help us ease the pain when we have another collision with those immovable things. We all but give up on those patterns ever actually changing because that's now how we see the world. They just are. Those things are not going anywhere. So we start thinking of sight as a workaround that maybe God can help us devise for those times when we can't budge those old patterns of behavior. We, we don't ever deal with those things. We just avoid them. Sight becomes then something that helps us manage our sin. In the words of John Ortberg, he talks about sin management. Help us manage, sight becomes something that helps us manage our sin instead of facing it. Our blindness remains, and sight helps us feel our way around. Instead of enabling us to see the world as it, as it actually is, sight becomes instead a new approach to blindness. Wow, do we really live that way? I think we do. Here's how that works. If a person is, say, an angry person, if he's given to angry behavior then he looks for things to stay on an even keel so he doesn't get to that angry tipping point because he knows fits of rage are not Christ-like. He really knows that. And so that's the sight part. So to avoid rage, he might want to exert a high level of control over his family to ensure calmness at home. That's the workaround part. He makes it clear to his family that uh, he expects certain boundaries to stay intact. He makes clear what his boundaries are and what he will consider acceptable and what he won't. He loves Jesus, and he will demand that his household run along the lines that would keep everything calm and easy for him so that he won't get angry because Jesus doesn't want him to display anger. As long as he's in control of his family members... As long as they are running everything by him and doing things the way he wants them done, he doesn't get angry. You see how that works? He has given up on actually dealing with the anger in himself and instead devised a workaround. 
Anger is his spiritual blindness, and it informs him what the world is like, so he then understands the world in the way that his spiritual blindness tells him to understand the world. He doesn't want to endure the difficult and frightening emotional surgery of dealing with that core issue of anger, so he chalks it up to the impossible. His spiritual blindness, anger, has determined what is possible and what is impossible. God doesn't want him to be angry, but neither can God really be trusted to take him through that difficult passage of dealing with his anger. That's what he believes. And he suffers, and those around him suffer, and they all live in a workaround world. Jesus said, the way we often see the world is actually a form of blindness. Christ, in this passage that we read today, once again, marks reality. Oh, unbelieving generation. He essentially says, oh, generation of people who are blind to the world as it really is. Jesus is the light of the world. That is, he says, see, here is the universe as it actually is, not as you have come to believe it is. Thank God for His light. This Bible speaks to us of Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the one who pierces the darkness to show how we may avoid that which would kill us. The Bible is not just a devotional book for your quiet time. It's not merely a book dealing with religious sensibilities. It's not simply a book of spiritual instruction. It, it is those things. But more than all of that, the Bible is a book of reality. It reveals to us that reality works only in a certain way. We must deal with reality as it is. If we do not, we will not survive because there is only one God there is only one way to live. Don't think the church in its culture escapes this pull to rewrite reality. Again, we read from cover to cover in the Bible about God-believing people feeling the pull of blindness again. Faith gets mired in generational and societal reinforcements. We've preached free trips to heaven so long that we've started believing that free means cheap, and we've started discounting the work of discipleship. To live with Christ and learn His way of life is hard. It does take emotional surgery. That's why few will find that road, Jesus said. But living without Christ, well, that's, that's even harder. You have to make up your own way of figuring all this out. So, we've replaced the light burden that Jesus told us He would give us with the heavy burden of workarounds. And Lord, are they ever heavy? We've traded a difficulty that actually gets us somewhere, that is the work of learning from Jesus, for a difficulty that just wears us out. G.K. Chesterton has diagnosed our contemporary state of thinking by saying, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, it's that it's been found difficult and left untried. That's where we've ended up these days. Our perceptions are conditioned by our habits of mind. That is not to say that we need positive thinking. No, 
We need thinking that begins with the light that Jesus sheds on reality. The Scriptures say, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Therefore, the primary problem that this father and his son and this whole crowd in this passage of Scripture faces is not the spirit that has polluted this boy's life. It is rather the blindness that keeps those who love this boy or have any interest in this boy from seeing reality. So when Jesus utters the phrase, O unbelieving generation, this is not an empty statement of frustration. He is actually diagnosing the fatal flaw in their perception that will lead them to a dead end. They were, all of them, father, disciples, teachers of the law, hangers-on, looking for some relief from a harsh world. Understandably so. So do you and I. Some healing or some strict living, whatever would work. But Jesus did not shine his light on reality so that we could get a break, some relief. He came that we might see life and enter into it. Let me put it another way. Jesus did not come to heal our diseases. Now, he did heal our diseases, many of them. But he didn't come for that purpose. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He did most certainly heal diseases. He did so, though, as a way to point to that day when all disease will cease and the human body, as well as the human spirit, will live forever. That's why he called those miracles signs, because they point somewhere. The healing is a sign that points to transformation now available to all who are willing to turn to Christ. There will indeed be spiritual and physical salvation. The spirit is regenerated and the body is resurrected. Along the way, the Lord will heal from time to time as he deems it will best point the way to eternal life. That said, that said, Christ did not declare, well, since you're not thinking correctly, people, you can forget about any help from me. No, no, Christ works with us as is. That's part of the gospel. As is. He says, if you can, if you can, Now, this is not a statement of indignation. This is not a statement of, do you know who I am, mister? This is not Jesus saying, I asked for a trailer with green M&Ms, and I mean it. Uh, He he didn't stalk off saying, I can't work like this. This is not what he was saying. He said... Tell me more about that if. That's what he was saying. Jesus rather tenderly points out the man's habit of mind and how it limits his life. Tell me more about that if. 
What's behind that? And you'll notice Jesus draws out a confession from him in that tender way. The man confesses, I believe, I believe, and I, and I don't. And I don't know what to do with that. That is the most honest and beautiful confession. It's real. It's completely devoid of pretense or disclaimer or posturing. That would be great on a Twitter handle, somebody to say, you know, to describe himself in a bio, believer in Jesus Christ, or sometimes a non-believer. Depends on the day you catch me. This is that man. His confession speaks truth, the truth, not his truth, the truth, not just about himself, but about the entire human race. Look, the man couldn't believe like he wanted to, but neither could the disciples cast out the demon like they wanted to. Neither could the crowd find the answer to what was going on with Jesus like they wanted to. Nobody there could believe like they wanted to. Nothing was working. When Jesus talked about an unbelieving generation, he was talking to everybody. Jesus didn't walk away after that confession. He drew nearer. That's what happens when, you're on, when honesty comes out of your mouth. The Lord leans in ever nearer. You know that scripture we read earlier in the service that, that Aaron read, Matthew 28? We call that the Great Commission. Go ye into all the world. But good grief, look at the context of that thing. A, a few lines up, it, it says, they worshiped him, but some doubted. There's your foundation of the church. Good heavens, you get a guarantee on that foundation? It's a good thing we've got a solid cornerstone. Some doubted. That's just honest. And Christ built the church anyway. He built it anyway. Christ works with us as is. He leans in nearer to that honesty. Another way of saying that is Christ accepted me. We talk about our accepting Christ as well we should, but listen, the most joy-producing thing is that He accepts you. Now, what did Jesus do when He accepted that Father's confession and welcomed Him in, wavering faith and all? Well, He worked in a very deliberate and focused way with Him and with the close group of those who were honestly seeking the truth at that moment. Look at that part of the passage that says, when he saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. Notice that Christ is very careful with the context of how he works and the context in which he works. Jesus displays this act of healing, this sign, only to the people who are looking for God, not for people who are looking for a display of power. That's why he did not wait until the crowd had assembled in order to act. 
He knew that the rowdy crowd running to the scene was not looking for God, but for power or for relief or for a chance to accuse Jesus or for a chance to stick it to the Pharisees or whatever. It was a jumble of reasons and motivations, and to that crowd, a miracle would show them nothing. They had already reached their conclusion. A healing, a healing would just be put to use for their own point of view. They would not see it as a sign of anything beyond their own made-up minds. That's how unbelief works. That's why Jesus only appeared to those who were looking for him. He only appeared to believers after his resurrection. Because unbelief works that way. No miracle is a match for the power of the conclusion you've already reached. But this small group, this small group was looking for the truth. And they saw it. They saw that God draws near to honest questions and open hearts. They saw that God will one day heal all diseases like he healed this little boy. That's why Jesus didn't need to heal every single human body that he encountered. If you see one miracle of healing either today or in this written word of God with an open confessing heart that's looking for what's really true, not for what your generation has told you is true, then you will know that one day all will be well. One day all things will be made new. For this father, this event is the beginning of a life of increasing confidence in Christ. It's not where he ended up. It's where he began. Questions remain but it's where this man began. It can be so for you as well. One of the questions that remained was in the minds of the disciples. They still had a nagging question that they just couldn't get out of their heads. Why couldn't we cast out that unclean spirit? And again, Jesus draws near to this honest, troubled question. He says, this kind can only come out through prayer. Now, he didn't mean that they weren't praying what he meant was that prayer doesn't work that way. It's not a vending machine. It's not pray and get a result. In fact, the, the best and most reliable prayer studies are very counterintuitive, honestly. Universities have funded these things, and they, they show that sometimes it just doesn't work. That's because prayer is not a mechanistic thing. Jesus' point here is that prayer is a kind of life with a rhythm. It is a life in which you and God have access to one another. That's what prayer is. And in that kind of life, sometimes there are utterances and there are petitions. Sometimes there's silence. Sometimes there is insight. Sometimes there's just waiting. Prayer is a kind of life, though, in which you and God have access to one another. God has come near you, near to you with all your troubled thoughts and your shaky hold on faith and all your doubts. That's nothing new to Him. He's not shocked by the doubts that you have. 
He expects it, as a matter of fact. But he knows what he's looking at when he's looking at you. You know why? Because he recognizes his handiwork. He knows who he's made. He sees how beautiful he made you. And he knows how strong you can become with his help. So your unbelief is the beginning, not the end. All is not lost. Can't believe like you want to. That's a great place to start with Christ. Let's stand up together. We'll have some time to reflect on this. Isn't that good? As we sing. So who wants to start learning from Jesus today how to live the eternal kind of life? Who wants to start? Doubts? That's the best way to start with Jesus. Come on. Come ye disconsolate. We sang because there's a Lord who's drawing near very tenderly to you. I'll be here to speak with you about trusting Christ. You come, you pray, you join this church. Let's have this conversation right now as we sing.